have enough time to catch us up to speed on the first 14 chapters of the book of Acts. Suffice it to say, we, we podcast every week, so you can go back and you can kind of catch yourself up if you're coming in this morning flying a little bit blind. But, um, but most of us, if we, if we picked up a Bible, we've seen the maps in the back, and maybe you don't know what those are. Maybe you looked at them and gone, okay, Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, Paul was a missionary, cool, and that's all you know, and that's it's kind of where we are in the book of Acts right now. We're walking through the various missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his uh, various bands of brothers that he sent out to uh, take the gospel to the end of the earth with. Last week, we came to the end of, of the first of those three missionary journeys. By the time we reach the end of the book of Acts, like I said, we'll, we'll have gone through three and we'll have seen some crazy things unfold along the way on each of these journeys, different from the last. The first journey was not without its challenges as we saw Paul and Barnabas suffer greatly for the sake of the gospel. And yet we also saw God demonstrate his power through human weakness to the praise of his glorious grace as the gospel was planted, as churches were not only birthed, but stabilized, as the nations were exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas end their journey where it began in the city of Antioch, where we pick up the story here in chapter 15, verse one, and we're told, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, let me just stop here. Already, something weighty is, is taking place here in chapter 15. The church has faced a number of, of barriers and obstacles and threats along the way throughout the book of Acts. Up to this point, we've seen the threats of persecution, hypocrisy, division, distraction, even martyrdom. But now we can add to the list the threat of false teaching, arguably even heresy. This is, this is an issue that the Apostle Paul deals with elsewhere as those very churches planted on his first missionary journey. We just saw this last week in the province of Galatia. Those very churches encounter a same distortion of the gospel to which Paul responds with a letter, what we've come to know as the book of Galatians. And he says this as he opens up that letter, Galatians 1, verses six through nine. He says to the churches in Galatia, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, he's talking about his first missionary journey there, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says, there's a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, and whoever's proclaiming that, consider that person or persons to be cursed by God. And he goes on to unpack what that distortion of the gospel is later in that letter to the churches in Galatia, chapter five, picking up in verse two, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in the Lord, he says, that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The, the churches of Galatia are being exposed to a message of Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation, a message which Paul says removes the offense of the gospel. The offense of the cross is, is that we can do nothing to merit the love and acceptance of God. The, the offense of the cross is that we're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. The offense of the cross is that our only hope rests in a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Coming back to this morning's passage, the, the church in Antioch is coming face to face with a similar distortion of the gospel as those in Galatia. And, and it's not that, that those who are championing this distorted message are failing to proclaim salvation by grace through faith. Right? This is significant. It's that they're failing to proclaim salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It, it's a message of grace plus, faith plus that they're proclaiming. Verse two says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Apparently, Paul and Barnabas have this heated exchange with these men from Judea, unwilling to stand by and allow brothers and sisters in the faith to be led astray, so that we're told in verse three, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. Like, no opportunity squandered for these men to witness to the mighty works of God in the gospel making its way to the end of the earth. Verse four says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Here we see it's not just about circumcision, but about the whole Mosaic law. And it's not simply a desire that the Gentiles embrace the heritage of Israel that we're talking about here. Going back to verse one, look at verse one. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a salvation issue that's at stake here. There's basically this idea floating around Jerusalem that one must become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Some scholars believe that it's an idea being floated around by professing Christians who aren't truly born again. And, and that, that could be true. That's one possible interpretation. Others believe it's a group of Pharisees who, who really had come to know Christ. Verse five says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, maybe young in the faith, unable to shake that which they've been steeped in for years and years. Happens all the time, right? Anybody remember when you first became a Christian? Maybe the most rough around the edges version of yourself, though you've become more aware of your sin over the course of, of your Christian life, yet you've actually progressed in holiness, as bizarre as that sounds. To use the language of, of one commentator I read this week, here in Acts 15, you have a group of Pharisee Christians committed to making sure that no one slips past Mount Sinai on the way to Calvary. A large number of, of Gentiles have recently come to love and follow Jesus, and where there should be rejoicing, there's criticism, something more to be done in order to measure up. Maybe that's your story. 
Maybe you know what it's like to personally experience the deadly poison of legalism. Would be the first to testify to the toll that it's had on you and the effect that it even has to this day. For many who, who come out of a legalistic experience, the natural response is to swing the pendulum the other way. Right? You see it all the time, into the opposite ditch of, of licentiousness, of idolatry and promiscuity. Like, I'm not gonna be like those legalists who tried to hold me down and burden me for, for all those years. I'm gonna live my life the way I wanna live my life. And somehow we, we jump from one ditch right over the gospel path into the other ditch, swinging the pendulum back and forth, ping-ponging our way, you know, across the path and missing it altogether at times. So easy to veer off the gospel path. Think about this for a moment. In Acts chapter 15, coming back to the story, we're not talking about a multi-generational passing of time since the gospel was planted in Jerusalem. We're talking roughly 15 to 20 years. It doesn't take long for a church to veer off the gospel path. It can happen so quickly and it can happen so subtly. One of the things I thought about this week is I hope as we gather in this place that God's people are encouraged. I hope that they're encouraged as they think about the fact that the gospel is at the center of everything that we do as a church, that we're going after a culture of gospel clarity, a culture of gospel centrality, a culture of gospel fluency. And that means more than just attaching the phrase gospel-centered in front of everything. Like if you've been around long enough, you know we're actually seeking to foster a culture where the gospel's at the center of everything we do. I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you're encouraged all the more that you hear often in this place that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that you don't go, again, that phrase can we put that off for a few weeks and then maybe say that again? But you go, yes, that's keeping us from veering off the gospel path. It's not just about planting a gospel-centered church. It's about keeping the gospel at the center of everything we do for years and years and years to come. Verse six tells us, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter in the city of Jerusalem. This is a crazy moment in church history. Right, if you've ever read any books on church history, maybe taken a class on church history, you, you've perhaps heard of councils that came together at certain points along the way, the Council of Nicaea, Council of Chalcedon, a couple of famous ones, where you, where you have a, a coming together to establish clarity and to fight for things like the doctrine of the Trinity or, or the doctrine of the hypostatic union where you have the two natures coming together in the one person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of humanity and the fullness of divinity. Centuries before any of those councils, you have the first ecumenical council in church history recorded here in Acts chapter 15, and it has to do with the very essence of the gospel itself. Talk about a weighty moment. There's a lot on the line here. There's a lot at stake. To use the language of the book of Jude, this is about contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is about the purity and essence of the gospel. And, and it's not that they come together and come to a quick consensus. Look at verse seven. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What a crazy scene, right? If you slow down long enough, when I read back through verses six through seven this week, I literally found myself clenching my fists, wanting to Marty McFly my way back to first century Jerusalem to give some theological biff a knuckle sandwich going, much debate? Are we for real? My guess is that there are probably a few more complexities going on regarding the Jew-Gentile dynamic than we're privy to, which would make this a very difficult conversation. Turns out they were just fine without me, believe it or not. Peter stands up. He reminds them all of his experience in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going back to the episode with Cornelius and his family and friends in chapter 10. Hey guys, remember what the Holy Spirit did there? Holy Spirit didn't seem to want to wait for Cornelius and his family and his friends to convert to Judaism before I could even give an altar call. The Spirit was on the move. Who was I to stand in God's way? I wasn't about to tell the Spirit. He had to hit the pause button so I could break out the knife and do a little circumcising first so that Cornelius and his family could practice a few Jewish customs so we'd feel a little bit better about the situation. Peter reminds them all of his experience of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and then he proceeds to ask a critical question. He says, why would we put a burden on the Gentiles that none of us in this very room could possibly bear? I don't see any of you performing the law perfectly, fulfilling it in perfection. I don't see any of you complaining about salvation through the grace of the Lord Jesus, to use Peter's words. Why would it be any different for our Gentile brothers and sisters? I love the way the Gospel Transformation Bible unpacks these verses. It says this, In the notes, it says, in the Bible, graceless religion is presented as an intolerable burden that only brings discouragement and despair. When Peter refers to the law as a yoke that no one is able to carry, he is echoing the words of Jesus who declared, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God favors the weak and burdened, not the spiritually proud. Jesus embraces the meek and the broken, the ones who feel swamped with heavy burdens. It is no small thing that he spent so much time with those considered the spiritual losers of his day. It goes on to say, through their system of sacrifices, the people of Israel were to look forward to the sacrifice that was coming, the true spotless lamb who would take away their sins forever, John 1. Instead, they attempted to attain righteousness through fulfilling the law's commands, which only served to place them under the yoke of guilt-driven slavery. The law binds, but the grace of God frees, Galatians 5. As long as we attempt to salve our conscience through acting right, we will find ourselves bound to the taskmasters of guilt and fear. Have I done enough? Is God pleased with me now? True freedom from guilt comes only when we recognize the boundless and undeserved love that God has poured out on us through his son. Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. So many people, especially in our American South context, live their lives as though the gospel were Jesus plus dance, monkey dance. And from there, it just becomes a a fill in the blank. What kind of dancing might God be impressed with? And anything we we fill in that blank with is just gonna lead to pride or despair, arrogance or hopelessness, depending on if we're in in a season where we feel like we're achieving it or a a season in which we feel like failures. I don't know how many 
people I've met, I, I couldn't tell you how many people I've met who have shared with me a personal story of having been converted from irreligion to religion, walking right out of the shackles of sin into the yoke of the new slave driver of legalism. Let me just stop and say, if that's you, if you come in this morning, you go, that's me, brother. You don't have to bear that impossible burden. You don't have to live that way. The, the gospel declares that Jesus didn't just do the heavy lifting. He did all of the lifting. He lived the perfect, sinless, righteous life that none of us could live. He died the death that all of us as sinners deserved to die as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. He victoriously conquered our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death through his resurrection. It's silly to think that we could possibly add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. I've used the illustration before. It would be like someone giving you a signed Mickey Mantle baseball and you looking at the signature and determining that, that something more was needed and pulling out a Sharpie and tracing over Mantle's signature. How bizarre, right? What would you have just done to the value of that baseball the minute you put the Sharpie to the ball? Jesus signed the check for our ransom in his blood and that is a signature that none of us can add to. Christ alone, the great liberator, not Christ plus our self-made rules. Let me just ask, is anyone in this auditorium this morning, you come in laboring and heavy laden? Anybody feel that way? Under the yoke of the guilt-driven slavery associated with trying to merit God's acceptance, bound to the taskmasters of guilt and fear, to use the language of the Gospel Transformation Bible, Jesus says three of the most profound and glorious words in all of scripture, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. If you're not a Christian, the call this morning is simple. Come to him. Come to Jesus. Recognize the boundless and undeserved love that God has poured out on you through his son. Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with you. There is no other gospel than that of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There it is again. That one and only gospel that Peter contends for here, and I love him for it. He speaks, and we're told, verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter drops the mic. Praise be to Jesus for Peter contending for the sake of the gospel. And we're told that Paul and Barnabas follow suit. Yep, everything Peter said, we saw it too. When we were on our first missionary journey, we saw God's saving grace and power on full display among the Gentiles, just like Peter with Cornelius and his family. And then James jumps in, verse 13. After they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is another name for Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Like the Bible agrees with this. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who made these things known from of old. Yeah, James here, the, the half-brother of Jesus, who would go on to author the very book of the Bible bearing his name, at this point in the, the early church's 
uh, history in Jerusalem, James finds himself in a pretty prominent role in the church. And, and James, which I think is significant, was a meticulous keeper of the Jewish law, making his assessment of this particular situation worth its weight in gold. You can just hear the crowd. You can imagine the, the assembly hanging on his every word. Like, are we gonna, are we gonna hang on to the true gospel here? Or is James gonna accommodate those advocating for this distortion of the gospel? What's gonna happen? James proceeds to preach a brief little sermon out of Amos chapter nine, showing from the scriptures that God's plan all along was to establish a people for himself made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And we're told that on the basis of Peter and Paul and Barnabas's testimony, along with the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, that James makes the judgment that the Gentiles not be obligated to keep the Jewish law of circumcision. And all of God's people who know what's truly at stake with respect to the doctrine of justification said, amen. Verse 19, James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James removes the burden of circumcision from the Gentiles, but he doesn't leave them without some requirements. What is that? Like, what do you do with that? What do you make of the requirements that Gentile believers, to use the language of this section of chapter 15, abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what's been strangled and from blood? I mean, these things can't be additives to the gospel, right? How absurd would that be? Hey, let's gather together for an ecumenical council and diffuse this idea that you can add anything to the gospel and then let's add four things to the gospel. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? Not, not only that, but the apostle Paul himself is a man staunchly opposed to distortion of the gospel. And he's one of the ones who's gonna carry this letter to the church in Antioch, something that Paul would have never done if these were meant to be formulaic additions to the gospel. So what do we do with, with this list? What do we make of, of this list of requirements? Up front, I'm gonna tell you, I don't know. Scholars are at odds with each other. There, there are three uh, angles that scholars and commentators take. I'll give you all of them because I think that um, in terms of the broad brushstroke of scripture, all of these things are true of the Christian life. Some argue that the list has to do with, with brotherly love and, and unity within the church, pointing to the fact that verse 21 gives the why behind this list, namely the presence of the Jewish people in these various cities and churches like Antioch, Look at verse 20 again. We should write to the Gentiles to abstain from, and then he gives this, this list of four things. Verse 21, for, which gives us the why. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You have Jewish, you have Jewish people who know the Old Testament well. They're gonna have a hard time sharing their lives with you if you don't abstain from these things. Paul says elsewhere in scripture, Ephesians 2, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, creating one new man in place of the two. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, my understanding of the gospel affords me a great deal of freedom, but I'll never elevate my freedom above my love for the saints. My, my rights and comfort are less important to me than my love for fellow Christians and my concern for their good. 
That always wins. They're, they're so precious that Christ died for them and thus they're precious to me too, my brothers and sisters in the faith. That Christianity involves laying down our liberties when the unity of the church is at stake. That as people under grace, we need to be willing to restrict our freedom at times for the good of others. That's where some scholars go. Other scholars ask, what about the inclusion of sexual immorality in the list? It's not a laying down of one's liberties to abstain from sexual immorality, right? That's what it is to be a Christian. That's, that's the evidence of, of faith having actually taken root. And so some scholars argue that the list in verse 20 has to do more so with personal holiness, arguing that, that this list includes things having to do with the idolatry and, and sexuality of cultic pagan ritual, that this is maybe the, the Jerusalem church's way of saying, you don't have to embrace the legalism of Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus anything within the Mosaic law for that matter, but that doesn't mean that you're free to err in that opposite ditch of idolatry and promiscuity. The gospel always fuels personal holiness. It's the back half of practically every one of Paul's New Testament letters. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Yet, where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will also exist. Are we progressive works of sanctification? Some of us slow and grueling in that journey, yes and amen. But from every gospel root will come visible evidences of gospel fruit, the fruit of the indwelling spirit at work within us. There's a third angle that scholars take saying that this is missional in nature, it has to do with missional sensitivity. After all, the book of Acts is about the advancement of the gospel to the end of the earth. How could there not be any missional implications in the listing of these requirements in verse 20? Those who come at it from the missional angle um, take passages like 1 Corinthians 1 into account where, where Paul talks about the gospel being the only stumbling block of offense. Let's not create unnecessary, unnecessary stumbling blocks, which might cause the unbelieving Jews to bypass the real offense of the gospel. And so Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In other words, when, when I'm hanging out with either Jews or Gentiles, I don't do anything to create additional stumbling blocks of offense. I take everything offensive that I possibly can off of the table so that they don't miss the real offense of the gospel, never wavering the apostle Paul in his message to Jews, the law doesn't justify me, Christ does, and never wavering in his message to the Gentiles, Christ is always Lord, I will not bend my knee to another. That as a man under grace, Paul was willing to restrict his freedom for the good of others as it pertained to living a life, uh, the life of a missionary. I don't wanna do anything that might prevent the advancement of the gospel. I'm happy to, to surrender my liberties if it might advance the gospel of Jesus Christ all the more. Again, coming back to the question, which is it, personal holiness, brotherly love, missional sensitivity? We, we don't know. There, there are too many uh, required reading between the lines to know explicitly what the driving motivating force of this 
this list of requirements was. But again, we do know that all three of these things in principle exist throughout Scripture. And, and I pray that we're a church known for all three. Verse 22 goes on to say, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And here we see the contents of the verdict of this first ecumenical Christian council. The brothers, quote, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." And here's that list, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. They craft this letter to the church in, in Antioch and some of the surrounding areas. And, and they, along with the whole church, commissioned Paul and Barnabas and, and these other men to go, carrying the, this verdict of the council in this matter regarding circumcision, including much of James's language here in addressing the council itself, going back to earlier in the chapter. And look at the response. As you close out this morning's passage, verses 30 to 35, it says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, you can experience or imagine the weightiness of this moment, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Coming back to that, that list of requirements, right, you, can, you can just picture some on the receiving end of this reading of this letter, who had bought into this idea that I can confess Jesus as Savior and then embrace a life of idolatry and promiscuity all I want. I can just trample the blood of Christ underfoot. And you can imagine them hearing that list and bristling in its reading. You, you can just picture a group of people who were more concerned with their liberties than they were brotherly love and unity within the church. I'm gonna live the way I wanna live with, with no regard for anybody else. I don't care about the Jewish people. Who are they? Like, they don't matter to me. All that matters is my relationship with Jesus and these people who look like me, think like me, and dress like me. You can just imagine in terms of missional sensitivity, people in the crowd bristling who want nothing to do with the setting aside of liberties for the sake of the advancement of the gospel because it's really about the building and advancement of their own kingdom, not the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that more people might meet him and come to know him and love him. There'd be an opportunity for a lot of bristling, right, in response to this short little letter, and yet what are we told? Verse 31, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Hey, 
yeah, we have to abstain from these things. We're called to abstain from these things, but hallelujah, glory to God, that there is no added burden in terms of our seeking the merit and acceptance of the God of the universe. It really is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In essence, it's really how we should read any New Testament letter, any New Testament epistle. By the time we get to any of Paul's therefores in the back half of those letters where he presents commands, we should go, hallelujah, glory to God for a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, so that these commands don't cause me to bristle. The gospel is glorious and fuels a desire and a passion to, to live this out, knowing that we're actually pursuing our own pleasure in God as we do because that's how he's designed the world to work. Ephesians 2, verses eight through nine, sum up this verdict well, I think. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To use the, the lyrics of one of the songs we sing as a church from time to time, I rewrote these lyrics. You don't have to work your fingers down to the bone. Nothing you could do could ever atone. But Jesus paid your debt, amen? You're a child of God by grace and grace alone. You're born again by grace and grace alone. You stand in faith today, this morning, by grace and grace alone. You'll run the race by grace and grace alone. You'll slay your sin by grace and grace alone. You'll reach the end by grace and grace alone. It's all of God's grace, all of it. Isn't that message good news? This will be the benediction a few moments from now as we leave this place. My prayer is that you would find rest in the gospel this morning. That if you're not a Christian, that you would come to Jesus as he invites you to come to him, to lay down the burden of seeking to merit the acceptance and love of God. And that if you are a Christian, oh man, let, let's not kid ourselves. Us Christians wake up often, do we not? And rather than live our lives from a position of acceptance, we live out our day in the pursuit of what we've already been given in Christ. And so I pray that you would rest in the gospel this morning and that you would rest in the gospel tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I pray that the gospel would fuel personal holiness in your life. I pray that the gospel would compel you to lay down your liberties when appropriate for the good of brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that the gospel would inform your sensitivities as a missionary where God's placed you. And ultimately, I pray that you would never stop contending for the one and true gospel so that we might actually leave behind a, a legacy for generations to come in this community and in this church. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship we do so every week in a number of ways. One way being communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. We have an opportunity to, to celebrate the gospel, to, to really sit with the weightiness of Acts chapter 15 for just a moment and to, to cry out, you can even do this audibly, to cry out before you come and receive the elements, hallelujah, glory to God, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and then come and, and take the bread and dip it in the cup as a visible representation and celebration of that 
pure gospel message and truth. There'll be people to pray with you in the back of the auditorium to pray for you if you want prayer. And then we get an opportunity to to also collectively sing, as James mentioned earlier, as the people of God, to sing of this, this glorious gospel that lives on today because it was contended for in the earliest years of the New Testament church and because churches today continue to contend for it and because Jesus promised that he was gonna build his church and he always keeps his promise.